Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This radio program is about reading. Learning to read is often confusing and frustrating. Parents and teachers sometimes create stress that flows from their personal angst to the frustration of the child trying to read. Reading to a non-judgmental creature who never comments and always appears to pay attention often helps to create reading fluency. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Becky Bishop, founder of Reading with Rover, a program to help children learn to read. Becky Bishop also operates Puppy Manners, a dog training school located in Woodenville, Washington, about 30 miles from Seattle. Becky Bishop relies on the close bond between children and dogs that creates calm moments and encourages a learning environment. Her organization, Reading with Rover, couples children who have difficulty reading with a dog who has no trouble listening. When Becky Bishop and I visited by phone from her home in Washington State on February 22, 2010, we discussed why dogs are better listeners than teachers or parents. And we began with Becky explaining how dogs help children to read. Well, it's important to know that just physically there's a change in children that we know of from documentation that when they're with a dog and simply petting a dog, it lowers their blood pressure. So they're calmer. And the dogs, they know, um, are listening, but they also know the dogs aren't going to interrupt or judge or make fun of them. And so it, it creates not just non-judgmental listeners, but the dogs are safer in the child's mind it's safer to read to a dog. Tell us about that. How does the child learn that it's safer to read to a dog? Well, once they start reading to the dogs, you can see it start to grow where they might be hesitant readers in the beginning. And then once they realize that the dogs are just going to lay there and be their friend, the dog becomes almost like a cheerleader. And we as handlers, too, also know how to use the dog to encourage the child through the dog. For example, when a child's reading to my dog and maybe I'm not sure that they understood what they read, I might say, you know, Zoom didn't quite get that. What happened there? And then they'll explain to my dog what happened so I can see that their comprehensive skills are also there as well. And they're just much more likely to talk to the dog than they are to a, an adult or a parent. So how do you begin? With phonetics or memorization of some of the more odd words in our language? It, with a young child who doesn't know how to read and is having difficulty learning? You know, we're not reading specialists, and so we, the handlers, we don't interject much into the reading session. We let the children in the schools that we go to, the teachers have identified that child's uh, challenges. And so, to be honest, we don't coach, we the humans, we don't coach the kids or identify what their reading issue is. 
But every once in a while, you know, it's obvious, and we can get them to talk to us more about what they read by using the dog. But we don't we don't have a reading plan for the child. But there is latitude, I would guess, based on what you just said, about asking the reader or telling the reader that the dog didn't quite understand what you said. Right, and sometimes I'll do that when they seem to just be reading without any really much inflection. Sometimes that's just an indicator to me that they're just reading words, but they're not comprehending the story. And so if I ask them, if I say, you know, Zoom didn't understand what happened there, and and then maybe they, they didn't, you know, sometimes they'll look like, oh, I don't know, I need to read that again. And so then maybe, maybe through Zoom I'd help them, and basically I could speak for Zoom, and I would say, you know, I think, Zoom thinks this happened. Do you think that's right? And um, and I just kid, they'll look right at Zoom and go, you know, yeah, I think that is right. But that's that's my way of getting the child to go back and review what he just read. But we don't always know, due to confidentiality, we don't always know what the children's challenges are that come in and sit with our dogs. So in a sense, you personify the dogs as could be done with a hand puppet in terms of the dog's ability to comprehend what the child is reading. Right. In in a way, but this is a living, breathing, animated creature, you know, whose eyes, one eye lifts up and one ear cocks, so it's much more effective than a hand puppet because it's a living being. Except that the dogs can't comprehend, whereas the uh, hand puppet can be manipulated by the person who does comprehend. Well, you don't know that, Barry. Maybe they do comprehend. So what's your take on that? I know that my dog, when depends on the child's inflection, but she gets very animated if they're reading in an excited tone, and her little tail will wag, and she'll get a little wiggle going, and sometimes if it's a little slow story and it's kind of sad, she'll lay down and put her chin on the child's lap, and so dogs definitely can tune into a child's emotions that day, too. You know, if a kid's having a bad day, the dogs know it. I would think that's true, but in terms of the context of the words and the meaning of the word, is it fair from your perspective to say that the dogs tune in to the emotions of the reader as opposed to uh, something else? I think that's fair. I think they're, I think kids, when they read, they do need a lot of emotional support. Um, when we were on the Animal Planet special, I think one of the most profound things was the little girl that had a hat on, Cassidy, that was reading to the Portuguese water dog, she said something that just had a profound effect on me. And what she said was, I think it's the dog's job to make you feel safe. And what people don't know is that Cassidy had leukemia. And she was 10 years old, and she'd had leukemia, diagnosed leukemia since she was two. And she actually passed away the following summer. And so when she said, I think it's the dog's job to make you feel safe, I I know what that meant because that was more than just about reading. That was about every day and every week with her with blood tests and lab results, you know, and am I in a remission? And so to Cassidy, that's what that meant. And so giving her a dog that day gave her a sense of normalcy, but it also made her feel safe. And I think that just was a profound statement for a child to make that was in that situation. Tell us about the role of the dogs when the children read to them. Well, the dogs usually lay down, and 
cuddle up with the kids, and their role is to be a willing partner with that child for that 15 or 20 minutes that they're there with that child. How did you get involved with the Reading to Rover program? You know, I started out, well, I'm a dog trainer. I have a company in Seattle called Puppy Manners, and I have always volunteered with my dog since I was a child, and I was looking to do that. So I started out um, taking my dog to hospice, and I really liked going to hospice. I just felt there's a need there, and dogs can bring a lot of joy into an environment that's sad. You know, these people are losing their loved ones, and I saw what a great benefit it was to have the dogs there, even mostly for the visiting people. But I noticed that my dog, Boomer, was really drawn to children, and he had just a complete personality change. Um, When he would get around the children, he was more animated, he was more happy. And I was going to hospice, and he was generous enough to go with me, but I don't think it was his cup of tea. And I got a call from a librarian in Basel who wanted to know if we could have reading programs on Saturdays at the library. She had read about the read organization in Provo, Utah, where they bring dogs into libraries. And it sounded like fun, and I knew my dog would love it. And so I said, sure, let's try it. And it was a great way to bring kids into the library uh, in the summer when kids don't normally go to the library to read in the summer. And it just took off from there. It just blossomed into a a real program where we've actually moved into the schools and we have a waiting list of schools that want the program. How many dogs do you have that are involved in the program? Right now we have 92 teams that are actively involved in Reading with Rover programs in the Seattle area. And a team is an adult that accompanies the dog. A team being an adult, that's right. Or, or we have some teenagers, too, and their dog. If people in other areas of the country are interested in developing this kind of program, how would you suggest that they go about it? I usually suggest that they go to the Reed site in Provo, Utah, R-E-A-D. They have a website called therapyanimals.org. And when you go there, they actually have a list of reading dog programs throughout the country. And there might be a reading dog program near you. And if there's not, they've got a great website that will give you information how to start a program and videos as well. And so I always usually refer people to therapyanimals.org. Does their program, the Therapy Animals program, differ in any way from your program? No, not really. We're a lot the same. Delta Society also is a national organization, you know, where all the dogs have to be therapy tested before they can do this. When they want to start to be, they say, how can I do this? The first step would be you need to become a registered therapy team through Delta Society or other organizations like Reading with Rover. We have our own registry as well and be tested, and that's where they start. And if you go to any of those websites, deltasociety.org or therapyanimals.org or readingwithrover.org, there's information on where you can be tested. Becky, can you tell us about how the dogs are selected to be listeners? Sure. One of the things that we do is they, they start with their therapy test, which is just basically a basic skills test. And then there are some petting exercises on that test to make sure that the dog can accept Uh, multiple hands petting him at once because these dogs tend to get crowded. 
a lot by kids. We are often like at a bookstore, we might be in a crowded situation. So we test them with crowds. And then once they pass their test with Reading with Rover, there is still a protocol that they have to meet. So once they pass their test, we then shadow them on six different occasions to make sure that the dog is an appropriate candidate to be around children. Because even really good dogs, sometimes dogs get a vote on where they get to visit. And so if we feel like the dog's too nervous or stressed in an environment with a bunch of children, then we might suggest to them that they visit at nursing homes and go elsewhere for a while and maybe come back and revisit a child environment. But that's one of the things that Reading with Rover does that I think is really good is that we don't let the teams go into any child facility uh, without a mentor there to observe and help them along. And then when they do go into the child facility, there's always an adult that escorts the dog. Right. There's always an adult that's with the dog. And when we volunteer, you know, we work with more than just bookstores and we work with troubled youth. We actually are setting up a program for the Washington State Home for Boys. And these are boys aged 6 to 16 that are currently unacceptable to be in a foster family. And so we have a lot of a lot of prep work sometimes when we're setting up a facility for a reading dog program, too. And so our volunteers also get extra training beyond just the therapy dog tests for certain facilities. We usually have to pick a more uh, experienced dog to go there, too. The... Home for boys, those are for boys who are not necessarily incarcerated due to delinquency, but come from such a ruptured background that they can't live in a foster home, as you say? Yes, it's just due to their situation. Sometimes some of them have just, they're very ADHD and maybe they're on medication. And some of them just come from such a neglected background that they're just not they need more care than what a foster family could give. So they live on campus called the Cobb Center in Seattle. And they, they were amazed. They, we brought the dogs in once, and it was the first time uh, one of the counselors there had seen the child sit still for 20 minutes to read. Is that a program that you're initiating? Yes. Can you tell us uh, how you're structuring it? Well, right now what we're doing is we're just gathering experienced teams and um, we're creating some more than just reading, but we're going to have positive games. We have a doggy concentration game that we're working on where the boys will pair up and work as a team to play the concentration game. For example, it'll be several rows of cards and they have to turn over a card and it says sit and then they have to find the other card that says sit. And once they find a matching card, they can ask the dog to do the behavior. And the great thing about these dogs is if you don't ask them in the right way, they're not doing it. And so it teaches the kids, um, one, to work as a team, but also about using appropriate tone to get people to do what you want. And so practicing with the dogs is just much more fun for them, but they do get it. It's a great, it's a great game for the kids. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Becky Bishop, who is the director of a program called Reading with Rover in the Seattle, Washington area, where dogs go to schools and are read to by children with developing reading skills. She is also the owner and operator of a program called Puppy Manners in Bethel, Washington. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. 
Becky, from my personal experience with the several dogs that I've owned over the years, getting them to sit is a critical factor. I enjoyed reading on your website what you said about training a dog when someone is knocking on the front door. And I wonder if you could tell us about that. Oh, about the about uh, guest greeters? Yes. Well, I think I think the biggest mistake as a, as a dog trainer, the biggest mistake that we make as dog owners or guardians of our dogs is that we let them go to the door and where there's just too much excitement. As puppies, they just get very excited and we're letting them repeat bad behavior. They're practicing what we don't want. And when that's not a practical thing for them to do because they're not learning what we want, I think it's better to just go put the dog away, either crate them or gate them until your guests are in. And once your guests are in and settled and the environment is calmer, that's a better time to bring the puppy out to learn. And then what we do here um, at the puppy ranch is we we have a random acts of door knocking. We might walk by um, a door and I've got the dog laying there and I'll just... I'll just knock on the door, and then we'll role play what we expect when somebody knocks on the door with the dog. And, and that way, when you role play, you're just acting out the scene. It makes much more sense to the dog when somebody really is there because he's practiced the scene several times. What is the role that you play? Well, we pretend. We, we role play. Well, somebody will knock on the door, and I'll say, just a minute. And I might say, boomer, rug. And I might send Boomer to his rug, and then I'll open the door, and nobody's really there, but I'll have a full-on conversation. Hi, come on in. How are you? And, and the dog gets up, and I shut the door, and I say, no, get on your rug. And so we just play it out as if somebody's there. And that way, when you practice, it's like practicing a scene for a play, right? Before you really, before game day, before the curtain goes up, they've practiced those steps a hundred times. And so we practice at the door when nobody's really there. And then we practice with somebody there, but we make sure that it's practice. And it's easy when you practice enough for the dog to understand that if if they're not going to get recognized until they're in a calm state of mind, they're going to get to calm a lot quicker. But the mistake we make is we let them at the door when they're all excited and then people are petting them. And so we're petting the wrong energy. You're rewarding the behavior that you want, and you're ignoring the behavior that you do not want. Right. You get what you pet. So if you want an excitable, jumping, obnoxious dog, then pet them when you come in the door. That's what they'll give you. But if you can just ignore them, even when you come home, I always say if you can ignore them, one, ignoring a dog initially upon greeting is just huge leadership. They get that. They do that to each other. And what is your method for negative reinforcement to a dog that does something that's particularly obnoxious behavior? Well, I think usually, you know, what we do is we take away what they wanted. So if it was jumping on me, I go away. If it was I held out a cookie and I asked them to sit and they didn't, they don't get the cookie. It's mostly, we spend mostly a positive reinforcement. If, if, you, if you recognize the positive, we don't have to deal with the negative too much. We'll take their space. If they, if they get into my space and they're jumping on me, instead of backing up, I might charge into them a little bit and take, take my space back and tell them, you know, I'll tell them no or don't. And then they'll offer me the positive behavior and I'll say, there you go, sweetheart. Good job. 
Many years ago, I read a book by Conrad Lorenz that he entitled The Natural Method of Dog Training. And his suggestion for a dog that does something particularly obnoxious is to grab it by the scruff of the back and pick it up and give it a good hearty shake so that it's really disoriented because it obviously can't uh, manage when that occurs and then put it down and walk away. What's your response to that? I won't dispute that that works, okay? But my the problem with that, that's just a method that inhibits the dog, but he's not learning not to do it. And, and the, the problem with that is what happens when a six-year-old comes in the door? Most dogs, if, if you do that, they won't jump on you maybe ever again, but they'll still jump on everybody else. And you're not going to be able to get a child to do that or your neighbor to do that because people don't feel comfortable um, manhandling a Some, dog. A so dog I don't, that they I don't, don't know. That, that works. I don't do it because I think it, uh, it hurts the relationship and the bonding you have with a dog because they become, they're not learning what to do. They're just learning that it's scary if they do it, and that's just inhibiting the behavior, but they're not learning the other behavior, what you want. So you're basically relying in your dog training on the positive reinforcement of the desired behavior and ignoring the undesired behavior. Right. I have four dogs, big dogs, four Labr- three Labradors and a plot hound, and we started training them at eight and nine weeks to sit to get pets. And not one of those dogs has ever been a jumper. So I think the more, the earlier in the game, too, you start to what's going to get you to touch me, giving them a positive behavior. They can sit or they can lay down or they can just simply not jump. Do you have any other suggestions for training dog owners? Uh, We have the grand theory. We started a very successful puppy therapy program here called the Paprentis. And all it is is we get together as a group. The Paprentis Project is for people who have puppies and they want them to grow up and be therapy dogs because you really need to socialize them a lot. You really want to get them out early into different situations and around different types of people and elevators. And luckily, Seattle is, I think, one of the most dog-friendly cities in the nation, so it's easy to do those things. But you really want to get them socialized well prior to 20 weeks of age. Finally, do you have any words of advice for people who uh, want a dog and would be selecting a dog from among its litter mates? What to look for and how to select? Well, if you're getting a purebred dog, a lot of times a really good breeder will pick the puppy for you. Okay, but if if the breeder wants you to pick the puppy, um, I might be tempted to take a trainer with me who knows how to evaluate temperaments and have them help me. Because otherwise you tend to lead with your heart and you might pick the wrong puppy. For example, if you pick the puppy cause, that you felt sorry for that stayed in the corner, that would be the worst pick because that's probably the really shy, timid puppy and just too fearful. And if you pick the first puppy that left the pack to come out and jump on you and greet you, the puppy basically picked you, that's probably not the greatest choice either because that's probably the dominant puppy. So I kind of like the puppy that's in the middle the one that kind of comes out, checks you out, and then maybe trots away and then comes back and says hi later and then trots away. But you want to be careful that you don't pick the one that you felt sorry for and that you don't pick the one that picked you. I would like to add one more thing, that we have a lot of rescue dogs in our organization as well, and 
We actually have a foster dog program here, the, the Rescued Rover program, where we, we have two to three foster dogs here a month that we train to be therapy dogs. So that they make, there's a lot of dogs in rescue and in shelters that would make wonderful therapy dogs. And um, I think those should, people wanting to get a puppy or a dog should give that serious consideration as well. Well, Becky Bishop, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I have a few questions. One is, can you tell us about an aha moment or an eureka moment that has come to you lately? I think the one aha moment was I had a very shy child, and he really didn't talk much. He would read to my dog, but he he didn't have any, the social skills weren't there. And so one day I let him walk my dog, and I went with him back to his classroom, and I introduced the reading dog to his classmates, and he just lit up and started talking. And his teacher about Christ, she said, you know what, he's been in this room for eight months, and he's never once had a conversation with kids until today. And so what that told me is that dogs can also serve as a humongous icebreaker for kids who might have social shyness as well. Well, it sounds like you have a pretty exciting project going there, and that it may be the answer to my next question, and that is, what would you like to do with the remainder of the one precious life that you have? I think I just like to make a difference in my community, and I I think that we are doing that as volunteers, and that's my personal goal is if I've made a difference in any one person's life in my life, then I'm I'm a happy camper with that. And finally, Becky Bishop, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Reading a book right now that I, it's called Living Life as a Thank You. And I love it. It's just all about daily gratitude and positive thinking and being thankful for the things we have and being able to look at the little things and be thankful for that. And um, I just think it's a really great little inspirational book. And of course, I read a lot of children's books because we have our own little dog library that we carry around with us. So one of my favorite dog books is, I know it sounds goofy, but it's Walter the Farting Dog. And kids just love that that book because it's a a funny, humane book about a, a rescued dog. And I just, kids really like it. Well, Becky Bishop, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much for having me. Becky Bishop is the founder of Reading with Rover, a program to help children learn to read, and Puppy Manners, a dog training school located in Woodenville, Washington, about 30 miles from Seattle. The books that Becky Bishop recommends are Living Life as a Thank You, The Transformative Power of Daily Gratitude by Nina Lesowitz and Mary Beth Salmon, and Walter the Farting Dog by William Costwinkle, Glenn Murray, Elizabeth Gundy, and Audrey Coleman. This program was recorded on February 22, 2010. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, Subscribe to our podcast service and share them as you wish. They're all free. 
We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541 and the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.